Hi, and welcome back to the Be A Better Ally podcast. My name is Trisha Friedman. My pronouns are she, her, and hers. I am so excited about this week's conversation and guest in small part because this week's guest has some phenomenal advice for those of us who are wondering how we can deal with resistance to DEI work in our schools and learning organizations. Before I tell you more about this week's incredible guest, I want to remind you, if you've not yet signed up for my free newsletter, I have some really important news to share this coming Monday. You can sign up for my free newsletter by heading over to allyed, that's A-L-L-Y-E-D dot org. I'm excited to share that news with you. Um, And again, I should let you know, my newsletter only comes out once a month, never any spam. So I'd appreciate if you can sign up for that. Now, let me tell you more about this week's guest. I am so excited to welcome Shauna Reed to the program. Shauna is an inclusion and diversity consultant who has an extensive background in leadership in education. Shona specializes in education and arts, working with a number of multi-academy trusts and arts organizations nationally and internationally. Shona believes in an inclusion-first approach. Representation is vital, she says, but only when an environment is focused on ensuring that everyone feels safe and that they belong. Shona focuses on building trusting relationships with clients, providing support and challenge. Listening is a central part of the way she works. As I mentioned, Shona has got some great advice for those of us who are helping to push things forward in our schools, organizations, I think even in our families and friendships. So let me know, let me let you know at the top of the episode that you are going to find loads of links to learn more about connecting with Shona Reed and about leveraging her leadership. Enjoy our conversation. In your blog post that's entitled, quote, three listening activities to drive your DEI progress, end quote, you talk about the importance of what you refer to as deep listening opportunities. I also noticed on your website that you list uh, listening as one of your foundational values. And Shona, I feel like the older I get, the more I come to value and recognize that working on our listening is not only essential, but it's also complex, right? I feel like in Western society, we almost overvalue speaking rather than listening. So I'm always really interested to learn uh, what's informing others' practice uh, and how you know others are, are going about doing that work. So as a leader and consultant, when it comes to growing your listening skill set, um, what's sort of at the foundation there or or what might be a few resources that have been really helpful for you? Or again, what does that even mean to you to work on uh, listening? It's a really good question. Um, and probably lots of different um, aspects to the answer to it. But I think fundamentally from a consultant perspective, um, when I work with an organisation, which may well be a school, but could be a group of schools, could be a an arts organisation or even a corporate organisation, invariably they would have done some listening in some way, even if that is someone has been to us and told us there's a problem here. They will often kind of say, we know that we've got areas to work on and we think these are the issues. So there's an awareness 
but they often feel like they already have all of, so at least some of the answers. And in my experience, when you actually start to interrogate that through a range of different listening activities, which I'll I'll go into, they have not got all of the answers at all, and they haven't listened to everybody, and they haven't heard all of the things people have to say. So sometimes then. I will say to them, you, you know, we need to put in place some data gathering, which is a euphemism for listening. <laughs> um, but it can be a, a much more understandable approach to the work. So in data gathering, I might mean um, and I might suggest that we do a survey um, because that's a really great way of just capturing a lot of information at once. And it, people sometimes are worried about surveys and we could do a whole podcast on why surveys are problematic because they are. But even simple questions like on a scale of one to ten, with one being or zero being awful and ten being amazing, to what extent do you feel included here, wherever here is? So straight away, you're gathering a sense of inclusion, which hopefully is fine. If you're able to ask questions that are quite generic, um, well, I would consider them to be generic, but those quite kind of questions where you're dividing people up into their identities, which might be around ethnicity, could be around sexual orientation, could be around gender, could be around disability, then you can look at the sense of inclusion for different groups of folks. And that can then tell you, well, this group of people are feeling all right and this group of people are feeling not so much. You can even put in um, a free text box, like what would make you feel better working here? Um, Do you have any suggestions? So you could literally gather quite a lot of listening material in three questions. Um, and, And the limit of questions is endless. Um, but you've got to be careful about people's tolerance of sharing personal information and how traceable it is. But that's a good start off. And then I find that if you sit down and then listen, talk to people and ask them quite open questions such as, you know, just tell me about your experiences here. One of the great things about being here, what are the things that you find most challenging? After that awkward start, people start to... Talk and ideally, I will say very little and actually just let the conversation happen amongst people. Um, and it's really common for people to start off saying, I'm having a really great experience here, everything's fine. And then by the time you finish the conversation, they've actually remembered there was that one time when, and there was another time when this happened, and you get to kind of put together a whole picture of what's going well and what's not going well. The other thing about listening for me is that most times people are not listening. They are listening to respond. So they're not listening to understand. They're preparing their answer while you're talking. We're all guilty of that. I think I'm very guilty of it. I'm ready to say what I want to say. I'm waiting for you to take a breath so that I can then say what I want to say. But I've probably misread or misheard all of the things that you were just saying because I'm waiting to say what I need to say. So I think in terms of suggestions um, on how we become better listeners, it is about being really conscious 
giving people time and space to communicate, asking open-ended questions. Um, how do you, you know, while I'm talking to you, Trisha, I know you're listening because you're nodding at me and I can tell by your face that you're listening to what I'm saying. So how do we use our body and our face to demonstrate that we're listening to what someone's saying? And it might be that while someone's talking, we're making notes. And then they feel, oh, this is important because they're making notes of what I'm saying. Um, and also creating a safe space so that you can say to people, you know, when we have this conversation, especially if it's a group of people and you're asking them there to report on a, you know, their, their experiences of working in an organisation, you can reassure them by saying, I will convey the content to what we talk about, but I will be at great pains to make sure you are not identified in this so that people are able to talk as freely as they possibly can. Yeah, I, I think, you know, especially as, as you mentioned, like it can be really useful and powerful to see someone's taking notes. But the flip of that is there also can be that anxiety of like, are they taking notes because they're going to tell someone exactly what I said? So yeah, exactly. I'm really glad you clarified that because that's often uh, when I'm working with a group, I'll I'll mention, you know, my notes are sort of for my clarity and my memory, but they're anonymized. And I yeah. also, you know, I, I make these notes transparent. So it's also not a, well, that's interesting that that's how she wrote that down. I think it's great when yeah. a group can see uh, what was recorded. I'd love to go back to something that you said at the beginning about how you frame this with an organization that you refer to it. I love that you said, you know, data gathering is a euphemism for listening. And I'm curious about that because I know often when we're working with leaders of learning organizations or leaders full stop, you know, often, especially when we're doing this work, there will be, you know, some conversation around to what extent does your community feel heard or listened to? And sometimes that can be a little bit of a, a sensitive nudge and sometimes school, you know, school leaders will say some iteration of, well, my door is always open, of course. And so, you know, we'll unpack the whole, you know, do you, why might it be that not everyone actually does feel comfortable just coming into your office? Um, and, you know, I, I, I'm pointing out that sometimes there can be a defensiveness, right? And I understand also leadership is difficult. So I'm wondering, is the reframing of the word listening because that can be maybe confronting for some if it's, you know, to what extent are you listening? Of course, mm -hmm. I'm listening. My door is always open. You know, people know. Um, mm -hmm. Has that been kind of a helpful reframing in, in terms of that strategy? Or am I, am I completely misreading um, why you frame no. it that way? No, you're not. That's definitely part of it. Um, that's definitely part of it. Do you know, I think there's a personal experience that sits behind that reframing too, in that when I have in the past said, okay, so this is what I'm saying and this is what all these other people have said from the activity that I've just done, which might be um, a survey, but also might be focus group discussions or other forms of stakeholder experience gathering. Um, it is not uncommon for a leader who is generally speaking, and I'm obviously talking in generalisations here, quite heteronormative, able-bodied, from a certain maybe economic background, certain educational background, 
to dismiss what I'm saying as subjective. Mm. And that in itself, as someone who is speaking to you as a mixed race woman, is a microaggression in itself and gaslighting too. Um, so I flip it to present it as this is evidence-based work. The evidence is all of this government-produced data, you know, funded research, papers, documentation, which is in the public domain. This is my experience as a consultant. And this is what your people are saying. So we've got that triangle, like a triangulated approach to evidence-based, research-based work of which your people are part of. So I think that's why I call it data gathering, because it is exactly that. And I find if I use the word listening, people kind of get incredibly defensive about it. And also it seems to allow them to dismiss it and therefore dismiss me. And I'm not okay with that. Yeah, no, and no, nor should you be. You know, it, it's interesting because I think the best leaders are the ones who are actively really doing everything they can to be more self-aware and doing that critical work of, okay, even when I do listen, whose voice do I automatically seem to give much more credit and authority to? Mm-hmm. Who do I bring more skepticism to? And why is that? Yeah. Um, and and also just, you know, how can I model actually that this is something I'm working on? Um, you know, that's that's something that I, I talk to leaders a lot about is folks are watching you. They are paying such close attention to what it is that you do, whose voice you're valuing. And also, if you've recognized that that's an area that you need to work on, tell people because, you know, it can be massively influential uh, in, in terms of others realizing, oh, this is important for leadership. Yeah. Um, so I'm Absolutely. I'm really glad you brought that up. Uh, I want to point listeners to another one of your blog posts, and I'll mention that both of these are over there in the show notes, listeners. So if you'd like to go directly to each of these posts, I'll make that nice and easy for you. This post is entitled How to Deal with Resistance in DEI Work. Uh, This is where you list and describe different forms of resistance. I'd like to speak directly to one of them. Uh, Readers, it's a great list. Be sure to check out that post. But the one that I wanted to highlight for our conversation is what you refer to as, quote, apathy and exhaustion. This is where the dominant group exclaiming that they are tired of or exhausted by the whole diversity thing. It's everywhere. End quote. Mm -hmm. I was so happy to see you write about this because this is something that comes up in conversation Mm. all the time. Um, And navigating that apathy, it demands so much emotional labor I'm wondering if you might talk to our listeners about how you help folks deal with that piece. And again, just thank you for shining a spotlight on this, because I think in the DEI space, this is something that, again, I'm just hearing all too frequently. um, And I I really just like how directly and and transparently you're talking about it. Thank you. Um, Just to clarify, are we talking about... um, how do we support people like you and I who are working in this space to deal with the apathy and exhaustion? 
organizations to move past the apathy and the exhaustion. Look at you just modeling also like listening. And you know what? It's completely my framing of the question. Uh, could go in either direction. So either actually, I'm, I'm going to pass it to you and say, which are you okay. more more interested in right now? Um, um, to be honest, I think the, the thing that's getting my attention at the moment are people like you and I who are working in this space all the time who are beginning to feel a little bit run by the de- emotional labour demands. And by that, I mean... Um, effectively when you're talking to people and one of their responses is you know, everything's just going to be too far, you know I understand Black Lives Matter I understand what it is for people who might be trans and non-binary but, you know we've just done so much of this now we, you know, we're losing people we're losing people, they're not interested in them. and really what you're saying is Okay, so the issues I face every day are not interesting to you, and the issues that your people experience every day are not interesting to you, and that's because you are immersed in privilege. Um, Even when you don't think you are, you have the privilege of being able to look the other way, and that is gaslighting on a huge scale, which I find on a good day frustrating and a challenge to be overcome, uh, and on a bad day, upsetting and distressing. So a lot of my attention has moved from, you know, you have I have some strategies that I will use, and it depends on who I'm talking to, to try and educate them as to why we need to keep going with the work. But um, my attention more and more has been drawn towards people like you and I, who are having to deal with this all of the time, and I think, one of the things I've had to do is to carve out space in my diary and be really careful about how much of one thing I'm putting in in a week and in a month. So avoiding talking too much about anti-racism because of my protected characteristics, I would say race is one, my um, sex is another, and my age is becoming another. But the one that probably is the most you know prevalent in terms of barriers would be my ethnicity it would be my race so I try and make sure that I don't do too much around that particular protected characteristic in a week and make sure I carve out some meaningful space there's a lot of work going on now I think for those of us working in this space to be able to connect and have some what we call supervision for, for safeguarding you know the same kind of safeguarding supervision so that you get a chance to talk about the challenges and think about strategies moving forward, but also trying to make sure I have a lot of variety so that there's, you know, much I like doing the strategy part of work um, and, you know, doing some policy. So there's a lot of variety so that I'm not just this one thing where everything that I talk about is my ethnicity because actually there's a lot more to me than that, you know. Um, so I think trying to be pragmatic in that sense to, so that I don't become apathetic and exhausted too much by it, so that you've still got the energy to keep having that conversation. Um, and then it, when it comes to challenging folks on that, it is about asking them some quite direct questions. So what you're, what I'm hearing is this. And someone that I work with a little bit, Alison Creel, who's a phenomenal woman, 
has a phrase that she uses, which is, what would you like me to see? Mm. And I find that is a really powerful phrase and kind of say, so this is what I am seeing. What do you want me to see? And it gives that person a chance to kind of reflect on, oh, I don't want to be seeing someone who is in the process of this conversation delivering a microaggression. I don't want to appear to be someone who's not committed. And it kind of gives, puts the onus back on them and not on me to persuade. Yeah, that's that's a really great coaching uh, coaching strategy. And I think your point about having to take time and the the reality that anybody who is in the DEI space, right, this is not necessarily something that any one individual, I mean, it's not work that can be done in isolation. Um, I don't know. I, I also try to remind myself that sometimes processing time can be really beneficial. Yes. So in that scenario that you've uh, referred to, I've been in that conversation so many times where you know, literally someone will ask, you know, I just don't even know how much longer I can talk about this. And, um, you know, depending on the relationship, it is sometimes, you know, I can be as direct as imagine what that marginalized group feels in terms of having to do the kinds of teaching that they have been asked to do because some folks haven't taken on actually doing the research and learning um, and I, I, again, I'm really glad that you mentioned this in your post because unfortunately what I see with some of the organizations I work with is they'll put together a committee or they'll ask a few people, Hey, we'll give you this title. You're going to be like our DEI yes. lead. We're not going to give you any money for it, but you know, you'll have the title and you can lead all the things. And again, for school leaders, for learning organization leaders who aren't thinking about the incredible amount of emotional labor that's there. And, you know, what, uh, you know, when you, you started talking about data gathering, I think it can be really useful to look at what money you've invested in, in terms of like upskilling with technology. I want yeah. you to compare that with this. Yeah. Absolutely. What do you, what do you notice about that difference? Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Um, so how we invest is, is an interesting piece too, but it, it's so complicated. And again, I, Listeners, please do check out that post because I think that we we need to have a conversation about these very real roadblocks. Um, yeah. And, you know, having that conversation in community, whose discomfort is being prioritized and centered yet again, Absolutely. right? Absolutely. Um, great question. Uh, think, great. Um, just on your, sorry, just on your point around um, imperative investment, you know, if, if you're doing this work properly, we're talking about curriculum, teaching and learning strategies, um, pastoral care, staffing, recruitment, retention, um, health and safety, all of the things. If you've got someone who's leading on teaching and learning across a trust, that's one of those many things that I've just spoken about. So the pay should be commensurate with at least that. And the amount of non-contact time teaching should be commensurate with that, not a poor, you know, teacher of English who's trying to do 25, 20 hours of teaching a week and then do all of the things that are going to make better outcomes for staff and and students in the schools. Uh, Yeah, Mm -hmm. and, you know, it's also the reality that especially in a school, um, 
you know, I'm in contact with a lot of sort of leadership training organizations for K-12 or, uh, education. And what is very good to see is now DEI is a part of your training if you're an aspiring school leader, right? That was not the case a few decades ago. And so I think it's also the reality that you're sort of asking someone to do all of this free labor that does fall under the leadership umbrella, right? I, I get very concerned sometimes when I will hear leaders talk about this as though it is separate from the work of leadership. Yeah. Um, and I find it's always great. Well, let's look at like the values and mission of this organization because DEI is there and likely it's been there for years, for decades maybe. Yeah. Um, so again, that that idea of, well, you know, I'm a leader, but somebody else takes this on. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So anyway, it's a great, a great blog post. Uh, listeners, please do check it out, share it. Um, you also work with an organization that I had fun Googling about uh, called Spotlight Inclusion. And I was fascinated, speaking of mission statements, to, to read more about the mission for Spotlight Inclusion, which reads, quote, at Spotlight Inclusion, we strive to inspire innovative progression of representation and diversity in the arts, both on stage and in the audience. Can you talk a little bit more about your work with Spotlight Inclusion and, and what they're doing? Yes. Yeah, so um, Spotlight Inclusion is, I'm, I'm the director of Spotlight Inclusion. It's a relatively new organisation, which, as you just described, focuses on the arts. And what's been really interesting is the uh, desire to become more diverse and you're often talking in the arts about spaces which are predominantly white but also predominantly there's a lot of classism within that you know kind of the theatre and certain theatres in particular being um you know the presence of people who are particularly financially affluent certain education backgrounds that is their domain um and so what's been really interesting is people recognising that we would like to be more diverse. By that, what they mean is visible diversity. And they would like that to be on the stage, but also to have more people coming through the doors to watch the performances. The challenge there, and we could talk about this all day, but the challenge here is that there's often a conflation between, okay, so to get more black and asian people to get to come and watch our performances we have to have more black and asian people on the stage and on one level i completely agree with that representation is great it helps people feel seen it's nice to see more stories on stage see yourself reflected back all of that but there's a conflation of um black and asian people will only come and watch shows where they're represented which is a poverty narrative then. It often will slip into a pity poverty narrative, which is a challenge. And then you've got the issue of the case of who's on stage, which is one thing, versus who is behind stage. So who is writing plays, who is doing the lighting, who is doing the um, um, you know, the musical direction, who's doing the sound, who's doing the set design, predominantly white you know, no no disability in that space, certainly no physical disability, you know, a decent representation of hidden disability. But, and then you've got this kind of 
institutional embedded system of certain roles for certain people, presence here, but certain are not there. So one of the things that I do, uh, I'm trying to do with organisations is to support them in removing that pity narrative and conflating groups of people with stereotypes and making assumptions about folks um, and what they will and will not enjoy and how much they will and will not pay. Um, to try and a deal with that strand, but also to say, okay, so clearly, if you want to have a, um, some diversity in your sound roles, clearly you're going to have to grow it. So we need to start creating some career pipelines and some succession planning. So I guess that's what I mean by that innovative progression of representation, because this isn't something that's going to happen tomorrow. And like a lot of industries, the arts are then creating <clears throat> spaces where I've been blocked here. So I'm going to create my own orchestra for black people. And if they're global, global majority people, we're going to call it the Chinique Orchestra and we're going to do that. Um, we're going to create ballet black. We're going to create you know, this wealth of LGBTQ plus orchestras now as well, because people feel safer in those spaces. And it's difficult then to say to people, so why do you think they created those spaces? But they clearly exist. So why do they why do they feel the need to create that? What are you going to do to unpick it? So that yeah, that's that's a big challenge within the arts. It, it's such important work, and I think the influence of the arts. You know, I think actually, if you look at the status quo and then you compare it to the canon. You know, in theater, in literature, yes. you know the the correlation there is is pretty obvious. And, you know, it's so interesting to hear about your work. Just recently, I spoke with the creators behind a podcast called BIPOC Credits. They are focusing on the TV and film industry. And what they're trying to do with their podcast is create this amazing archive uh, that, again, looks at all of the behind the camera stuff, everything from makeup artists to special effects folks. And again, talk about how are we having representation there? Because as you say, you know, it, it's an exercise that I like to do with students when we're looking at popular TV or film that might purport to be, oh, this is a queer story. Okay. Mm -hmm. Let's look at who is involved in the writing, in the directing, yes. in the shaping of that narrative. Uh, and there's some great films to look at that purport to be queer yeah. narratives, but actually their messaging is probably harmful um, and so and I the think backdrop, that the backdrop as well, Trisha. Yes. You know, often those LGBT stories are in the backdrop of AIDS, um, and it kind of links that now harmful kind of connection and stereotype between these group of people associated with this horrible event. Always, like, there's no other backdrop for that story. It has to be in this tragic story, and um, and that, that narrative I think is so harmful people don't realize that when they're trying to do diversity do diversity in inverted commas what they're actually doing is delivering a huge microaggression yep it's so interesting i've been reading this book it's a great collection of research it's called the price of nice and it gets <laughs> into sort of what is nice when we're talking k-12 education the connection it has with whiteness uh, and there's this passage where one of the researchers is talking about a phrase that I hadn't heard before called near enemies. And it's two different concepts that are seemingly related, but are actually really 
opposite. Uh, and they were talking about, you know, what you were saying with pity and how people often will conflate empathy. They think they're being empathetic, but actually they're taking a pity approach, right? And so yeah. I've had this often as a queer woman where, again, because I think of the nom- dominative narrative that's out there, it's like, oh, you're a lesbian. That must be horrible. And I'm like, actually, I love being married to my wife. I did choose my wife. I would choose her again. It's not this tragic story for me. Like, I love our our partnership, like, you know, and I think very few folks have been presented with a narrative like that. And so, again, Spotlight Inclusion reminds us that we really do need to be thinking about who's getting to shape the story. Um, that's That's so powerful. So, uh, I'm, I'm guessing, you know, folks might be interested in learning from you both the work that you're doing, um, you know, as a leader consultant. And uh, I, I know that we've got a number of listeners who also are teaching in the arts. And I think a story like what Spotlight Inclusion helps to do is really important for young learners who are also thinking, do I want to pursue a, a career pathway in the arts? So for anybody who might want to connect uh, and learn how to partner with you or learn more about your services, uh, what's the best way for them to learn more about partnering with you? Thank you. So you can find um, me on LinkedIn, um, which is where I kind of talk most about the work that I'm the work that I'm doing and, and the engagements and the webinars, those sorts of things. You can find the web show, but also you can find Spotlight Inclusion now on LinkedIn. Um, there's quite a, a good inclusion resource back on, on the spotlight inclusion page which you can download um, and it's meant to be quite a useful way for people to do some self-learning about different topics and there's a EDI leadership section as well with some pretty evergreen um, content people to engage with so they can learn how to be um, supportive leaders in this place um, even if they aren't you know EDI specialists it's how do you lead your organisation through the lens of inclusivity. Um, you can also find me on Twitter. And then there's two websites. So my shownareed.com website is largely where my education clients will find me and find those packages that are for education. And then spotlightinclusion.co.uk for my arts-based and some corporate work as well. Uh, and I know that website also offers uh, folks... Again, you know, this work is always contextual and I appreciate, you know, you you offer folks that discovery call. Yeah. For a school leader who might be listening and is thinking, I've never done a discovery call with a practitioner before. Uh, can you just briefly kind of describe like what's that about? What can they expect? And actually, why is that really best practice uh, when, when we're talking yeah. DEI? Yeah. So it's very informal the whole approach is to try and put someone at their ease because, you know, I fully, fully appreciate that people are coming to this conversation perhaps, you know, through um, some kind of event or a complaint or something significant that's brought them to come speak to me. So it's very much about um, me creating a safe space for someone to just tell me why we're here. Why, why do you, why do we need to talk today? What are you hoping to get from the conversation, you know, from our work together? What are your main concerns and what are your worries? Um, and then the vast majority of the stuff that I do is bespoke. So it's, it's very much about thinking, okay, so where do we need to start? And that will always be around raising, you know, being aware of the, 
the situation properly, fully informed that listening is with the right owner. And then creating a plan for the future. And, and it is about what you can manage in terms of your resource. It doesn't have to be, you know, a two-year project with thousands and thousands of pounds. It can just be, here are some next steps that you can consider to implement yourself. So it's very informal and very much about me being a critical friend and being supportive. Uh, again, I'm really glad that you walked folks through that because I always feel like it's a little bit of a red flag if it's a DEI practitioner who says, you know, I have this one size fits all approach, like just let let me take this template and bring it to you. Yeah. Um, and I, I've had a few eyebrows raised when I've said that. And I'm like, look, you know, if you weren't feeling well and the doctor said, like, I don't need to talk to you about you know, what's going on. Like, I just, I'm a doctor and I have done this with hundreds of people. Like, would you actually want to take that person's medicine? And it's like, mm. yeah, that's a great analogy. I'm going to pinch that if that's okay. <laughs> that's a really great analogy. Absolutely. It's yours. Thank you so much. Uh, again, the, the blog post will be there in the show notes, uh, your social media, your LinkedIn, the website will all be there. Uh, as well as information about Spotlight Inclusion. Thank you so much for taking the time to share your insight with listeners today. Thank you, Trisha. Thank you. Thank you to today's guest. Folks, you can learn all about Shona Reed by heading over to the show notes. Thanks again so much for listening, and I'll see you again next week.